Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And today, we're dangerously likely to talk about climate change. So let's go above the fold for this week's headlines. So Terrell, I want to start off with uh, kind of an article from the New York Times. The author is Norimitsu Onishi, and he just talks about uh, how American ideals seem to be at least to some leaders in France, threatening like France's ideals in their own system mm-hmm. of governments and just um, culture in general. Say stupid. So kind of directly straight from the article, um, the threat is said to be existential. It fuels successionism, gnaws at national unity, abets Islamis- Islamism, attacks France's intellectual and cultural heritage. The threat, in quotes... Um, by France's own President Emmanuel Macron, certain social science theories entirely imported from the United States. So French politicians, high-profile intellectuals, and journalists are warning that progressive American ideas, specifically on race, gender, post-colonialism, are undermining their society. There's a battle, in quotes, from uh, Mr. Macron's education minister. There's a battle to wage against an intellectual matrix from American universities. So Terrell, say stupid. (laughs) The interesting part about France is that race is not actually recognized by the French government. They believe in universalism, that everybody is treated equally under the law. No. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly I have some passion around France (laughs) and the French culture. So this theme is, is not new in France, Mm-hmm. Um, around American ideals and possibly destroying their culture, in quotes. Um, but a lot of this like supercharged reaction of, of late has come from around the same time that there was uh, mass protests around George Floyd's death in America and then in France. Yeah, there were some June. really there were some really amazing reflections on race in France, which is why I, I shook my head when. And, and called them stupid or said it's stupid um, <laughs> when you spoke to that because yes the, the French ideal is that you aren't a certain ethnicity you're not a certain race you are French but that doesn't ignore the Islamophobia the the struggles that they have from a religious base from French politics and French culture um, that still make people feel unwanted they the French like to act as if they're perfect when they truly are not. That is the moral of my story. Well, throughout the article, it seems that there's really two competing sides in France right now. It seems you have a younger generation um, in universities maybe maybe unnecessarily being pitted on this side as well by mm-hmm. French leaders. Um, but you have, you have one side kind of saying, like, France has to recognize it's... It's kind of slavery. It's yeah. colonialism. Even past. though it was the first country, fact check me, but even though it was the first country to abolish slavery. I think it was one of the first. Um, and then you have the other side saying, if you talk about race, it destroys our culture. And that's not really an exaggeration. Yes, it is. It, you act as if race isn't intersectionality. You can be French and black. There are a lot of French and black people. You can mm. speak to race without it destroying the culture. Also, 
let's not pretend like the French haven't glamified, um, glamorized, that was the word I was looking for. Let's not pretend that the French haven't glamorized uh, their history and their facts and their propping up of uh, Euro-centralistic ideologies and views. Like Mm -hmm. Part of the reason Americans make such a huge, I'm speaking like I'm not one, but part of the reason Americans can make such a huge argument about what white culture is is because they can lean into French culture that highlight and glorify their kings, their queens, mm-hmm. um, all of these these views of some white supremacy um, from a very Euro-skeptic and Eurocentric view. But one thing I do think is important here is the reason I'm very frustrated with this specific article is it it lacks some true understanding of where the French culture is and where the French people are. Again, not trying to pretend like I'm an expert. I've studied French for a while. It's something I care about, so I do keep a small tab on what's happening in the the country. And Macron did Macron did something that political figures hadn't done before in understanding what was happening in the country and literally launching his own his own political party um on marche that challenged all the other structures so when this article starts looking at oh uh le pon is actually challenging macron and his potential of being president it's taking out a lot of context of how we got here and why macron made the party that he did it wasn't because they were fearful of what the what Le Pen might do and what what the National Front might do. It was because Macron recognized that up until that moment, no party was having a real conversation about what was impacting France. And his centralist view of we don't need to be the nationalists, but we also don't need to be this this group or this these people who are completely ignoring our people just to be a part of the EU. He found this happy uh, married peace, and that's why in 2017 he beat Le Pen, uh 60, I want to say it was 66% to uh, 34%. Like it, it wasn't even close. So when we look at it from an American side of things, we forget that they do it in a proportional standpoint. It's more like a Georgia runoff than a presidential election that we're accustomed to. If neither of them have an outright majority after the first run where there's multiple political parties that are running, there's a a huge Green Party in France that actually saw some growth because of um, Omarche. Once they disseminate out, those parties tend to gravitate closer towards Macron's uh, Un Marche, not towards the National Front because they they understand and recognize that... um, nationalism while important in france because they care so much about their culture does not mean that they're going to be successful especially watching what's happening across the pond in the uk with brexit while they might not like the uk they certainly don't want to go down the same path and be compared to them later i just found this really interesting it's not normally an article i find interest in um not because i'm not interested in france and world politics i'm just lately and I think I speak for a lot of maybe the audience when I say this. I've just been really uh, 
hyper focused on what happens in in American culture and politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found interesting about this article is, you know, you kind of read this stuff, especially in the last few years, about kind of waning American influence. Yet France is having a big national conversation. Might yeah. I say? that is basically influenced by American ideals. And I, I think that, again, comes to the point of... And granted, I I don't know this writer well enough. I don't know their background. But I do think there's... There's a narrative being set that I think if you were to walk through the streets of Marseille or Nice you would not hear the same conversations. If you walk through Paris, maybe, because it's a tourist hotspot and you're seeing all of the different folks who happen to be there. But if you really even uh, walk through um, Bretagne up north, um, if you were to really get into where the French people are, I don't think you would be hearing the narrative of uh, American ideology are challenging our beliefs or are causing any issues. I I genuinely feel, and maybe this is too much of an assumption, that you would hear more of the conversations of, we don't like the EU, but we do like the benefits we're getting from it. We don't like the fact that we feel we're losing our nationality. However, we do like the fact that I don't have to spend on bread because I'm a part of this bigger market. And I think that that's more of a narrative and that's more of a conversation that, yes, it might inherently bring in new ideas, but um, it too may lead for, for some better conversation than this idea that the American mindset is plaguing or intruding upon the French one. So, Terrell, I can tell that you're uh, uh, pretty interested in French politics, but... Uh, comme si, comme ça. You know, I saw a political article the other day that I think, I hope you can shed some more light on, about Ron DeSantis becoming a 2024 hopeful for the Grand Old Party, the GOP. It's funny you call him the Grand Old Party. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, when the party's crumbling, what else, what else would you expect than some <laughs> random... Florida governor. Um, yes, there's an interesting political article out written by Mark Caputo that kind of dissects the, the current landscape as, dun-dun-dun, we already start looking to 2024. Yes. We love it. <laughs> um, something I really thought was interesting it really starts right off the bat. Um, Mark writes... Ron DeSantis once drew national scorn for his stewardship of Florida's COVID-19 response. Critics took to referring to the governor as Death Santis for his resistance to restrictive measures. But the very blowback, marked by predictions of doom and widespread criticism for being divorced from science, has made DeSantis ascendant in the GOP. His position is strengthened among the GOP grassroots and elites heading into the 2022 re-election in Florida and accompanied by increased conservative chatter nationwide about a presidential bid. With a COVID death count cover-up consuming New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and pandemic-related recall efforts haunting California Governor Gavin Newsom, Republicans 
are embracing DeSantis as a red state exemplar pointing to rates of COVID deaths, vaccine vaccinations, and unemployment in the most populous blue states. So I struggle here because... <laughs> Why do you struggle? The whole world is looking at, at Florida to some extent and recognizing, yeah, they never closed anything down. We're not, we're not seeing all these peaks. But something interesting that they highlight, the COVID death cover-up, DeSantis was in, embellished and, and stuck in a cover-up midsummer where he kept the rates low so he could keep the state high. So my question to you, Caleb, is as the GOP is starting to consider 2024, is this a real story? Is is Rob DeSantis potentially the next presidential nominee for the Republican Party? <laughs> I wouldn't go so far as nominee Terrell. <laughs> Um, while I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of Republicans threw their hat in the ring in 2024 and Ron DeSantis could be one of them, um, this feels like a gossipy article and sometimes I'm here for it. Um, I mean, if reporters are hearing a lot of chatter about, oh, look at DeSantis and look what he's done in Florida, which to be completely honest is not really anything to be proud of. It's a travesty. (laughs) Um, then they are. Do I think Ron DeSantis actually has the has the might to win the the uh, uh, the primary if he ran for president? Um, no, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, I and I might be biased here, but um, I'm I'm sure that there's just so many. I I feel like there's better candidates that could potentially throw their hat in the ring. Like name five. Who five? That's name a five. lot. I, I felt like there's a then Ron DeSantis. Okay. Yeah, better candidates than Ron DeSantis. Name five. And uh, now I in say, the GOP currently. I say better because um, I say better not because I personally think they're better candidates, but because they could make a better case for themselves. Even even if some of them seem a little nuts, mm-hmm. um, I think Nikki Haley would be a better candidate. Um, oh gosh, who else? Oh my gosh. Um, for our listeners, this shows how much of a struggle the GOP has right now and why Ron DeSantis <laughs> could very well be the nominee. Please continue. Um, I refuse to say Donald Trump because, first of all, he's worse, but I don't want him to run. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, oh, gosh. I don't know. I'll just throw Mitt Romney in there, although I, he's not going to run. He's not going to run. Um, but he would be a better candidate for sure. Um, oh, gosh. Who else would run? Let's just say Liz Cheney just for the hell of it. Also not going to run, but I appreciate the efforts. One thing that I think is interesting about the people you're naming is the logical answers, the ones who should be, not Ted Cruz, Marco oh, Rubio, well, that's Josh Hawley. I, I don't know, if, I don't know if, if Ted Cruz, Rubio, and Hawley are worse than DeSantis or at the same level. Hmm. I don't really know DeSantis that Ted well. Cruz is definitely worse. Yeah. Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is always. Ted always Cruz bottom. might be a little bit worse than Trump, to be honest. But also, Ron DeSantis could probably beat all three of them if it was like a four-man race. I don't know. I, I, you know what? I, I'm gonna go out on a limb here. I think Rubio could be better than him. I think Rubio would lose Florida again. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if he did. Which means he would DeSantis? drop out. 
Well, okay, maybe in Florida, DeSantis might be better. But nationwide, I don't know. So what I'm hearing from you right now is there's no hope for the modern GOP. <laughs> we can pull the lovely little life support plug that's keeping uh, Mitch McConnell alive and just just call it a, call it a day. It was good. It was good while it lasted. We tried. How many years have they existed? Well, the fact of the matter is that the GOP have they have got to understand that the times are changing around them, and rather than double down on on the demographics that they target, and I mean, in a lot of states, gerrymandering and in different voter suppression laws, they gotta they gotta adapt to mm-hmm. the changing environment that is the United States. And if they would do that, then even if we still didn't agree with Republicans, we might we might be getting better policies on the table. One can only hope. Yeah. Well, Terrell, what do you think of this story? I must know. Is it gossip, dumb stuff, or is it uh, is it juicy primary Republican primary presidential primary uh, uh, predictions? Unlike 538, I don't pretend to make any predictions with the modern function that is Oof. politics. Um, Why are you attacking 538? I just felt right. Um, yeah, I, I don't... I can see it. I Just in what you were saying, I, I think as we move through into the midterms, into whatever the next presidency is... I think it is very hard for the current party to take a hard look at itself and find a candidate that's worthy of being president. And I'm saying that about Nikki Haley, Tom Scott, any modern Gosh, Republican I would have right said now. that Nikki Haley would have been a great option before Trump. Exactly. And now? And her little I, I don't piece understand. to cover herself didn't do much justice either. No, no. She aligned herself with Trump pretty heavily and... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know. It, it's just really, I don't know what the next four years looks like for the GOP. If it stays Trump aligned, then maybe she has a chance. But even then, I don't really think so. Just play her um, convention speech. That'll pretty much tank her for a while mm. and paint her as, do you want to go back to where we were pre-Joe Biden? Also, that's making an assumption that people enjoy where we are during Joe Biden, which is the jury still on that one. Um, yeah, I just... I think that Rob DeSantis, as awful as it is for me to say this out loud, (laughs) makes sense. He could be a nominee for the Republican Party because I don't think the Republican Party has learned anything in the last four, almost five years after having to deal with impeachment. Um, And I, I was joking with you, if we were talking about Pokemon, I would probably argue that like Josh Hawley is is your your first stage and then the next evolution's Ron DeSantis and then the next evolution's Trump like <laughs> if they're like oh well Trump got defeated in the battle let's devolve and go one back i know you wouldn't do this in pokemon don't use this analogy any further than what i just said before but like rob DeSantis <laughs> makes sense it's like oh maybe he'll evolve into the next trump and yeah oh gosh so all that to say yeah i have no hope for them So, Terrell, last week there was a huge cold snap around the U.S., Midwest, Southeast, 
everywhere. Snow, frigid temperatures, power grid failures, blackouts. And I felt like now was a good time to really bring up the topic of climate change. So per it's the not New real. It's not ooh, okay, Fox News. <laughs> so per the New York Times' Brad Plumer, analysts have begun to identify key factors behind the grid failures in Texas. There was millions of people, uh, four million, five million, sort something like that, um, with power grid failures, uh, blackouts in Texas. Uh, record-breaking cold weather spurred residents to crank up their electric heaters and pushed power be- demand beyond the worst-case scenarios that grid operators had planned for. At the same time, a large fraction of the state's gas-fired power plants were knocked offline amid icy conditions, with some plants suffering fuel shortages as natural gas demand spiked. Many of Texas's wind turbines also froze and stopped working. The crisis sounded an alarm for power systems throughout the country. Electric grids can be engineered to handle a wide range of severe conditions, as long as grid operators can reliably predict the dangers ahead. But, as climate change accelerates, many electric grids will face extreme weather events that go far beyond the historical conditions those systems were designed for, Hmm. putting them at risk of catastrophic failure. So at this point, you might be wondering, okay, how is there cold temperatures like this and snowstorms and whatnot? In Texas, isn't that place supposed to be warm? Yeah, isn't it supposed to stay hot? What? How does this happen? <laughs> hot and humid, am I right? Um, <laughs> so, per Bloomberg Green's Brian Sullivan, in the case of the Texas cold snap, the phenomenon began in the first week of January when air in the in the stratosphere above the Arctic warmed suddenly. Mm-hmm. It's you should note that the North Pole specifically the has been heating up twice as fast as any other place on Earth for the last 30 years. Yep. This setup of a slow-moving atmospheric chain reaction that weakened the polar vortex, which is the girdle of winds that keeps frigid air corralled at the North Pole, allowing it to spill out into the temperate regions of Asia, Europe, and North America. Once the cold starts rolling south, very little can stop it. Mm-hmm. Now, while we're not climate change experts, Drell, how do you think this cold snap, especially in Texas, has brought climate change back into the mainstream media? Do you think that climate change left the mainstream media? I don't think it has been the number one topic um, for the most part over the past year. It's been COVID and it's been election and then it's been impeachment again. Interesting. Okay. Uh, It's been in the news, but I don't, I don't feel like it was there for a while with impeachment and Joe Biden's inauguration and all of that. And now I feel like it has come back. And I think something that, um, environmentalists and climate experts have gotten really good at is changing the narrative. I, I think one of the reasons we're having a robust conversation about it now is we've moved past the, well, the, the earth isn't warming. It's actually getting colder, which is not true. Um, but everyone's feeling colder what, temperatures. What do you blah, mean, blah, blah, blah. There was snow in Boise. That never happens. It does snow in Boise. That means that globe isn't warming. It's not warming. It's getting cold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, I think to, I think to the election, and I think to the Biden administration and the fact that, and I'm not trying to give him too much credit here, so I want to give that a caveat, but oh. he did take an opportunity to tether climate change, environmental justice 
to multiple things. And his, his vice president also did the same of climate change isn't just this nebulous that we need to tackle. It matters for national security. It matters for racial justice. It matters for our economy and, 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 and in his, um, what, his first week of being in the White House and being president, he moved forward with some amazing policy um, initiatives and thoughts around creating an envoy on climate that is a part of the National Security Council that is always thinking about and always bringing up conversations about climate. Re-entering the Paris Climate Agreement um, the executive order on tackling the climate crisis at home and abroad spells out the focus of this administration is to finally put the climate crisis at the center of the United States foreign policy and national security and stop this divorce that we've seen over platitudes of administrations to feel as if they're, it's an either or, not an and. Um, so yeah, I, I agree that we talk a lot about a about COVID, but I also remember and recall when we started talking about COVID in March, all of a sudden we started talking about, oh, well, when summer comes and it warms up, is that going to limit the spread of it? And we started having a more robust conversation about what that impact looks like. When the earthquake happened in Idaho, there was a bigger conversation of why is this happening? How do we get here? We hurricane season came through and we had more robust conversations of the sheer astonishing number that I think we've let die out now because so much has happened since then of 40 named storms in one season. That's unheard of and is not climate scientists are literally screaming that this is a key and a sign to an impeding doom. So I don't know if it's left the national context. I just think it's starting to slowly embed itself in a lot of places. My concern is we have places like Louisiana, Texas, Alabama that just shut down because they got a foot of snow and, well, not a foot, but close to it, and freaked out. And instead of them having a momentary shift to say, okay, what does this mean? Like Texas, we just saw huge power outages that we were never prepared for it was quicker to say well we need to move back to fossil fuels if we let fossil fuels go then everything's going to go downhill yeah the fact of the matter is that uh, places that don't normally get wild weather like pretty much every place that got hit in the midwest today pretty much um they're gonna they're gonna try the response is let's try to predict when these wild weather patterns will happen. Mm -hmm. But with climate change, wild weather patterns become very hard to actually track and predict. Um, And that'll be the new normal unless we actually do something about it. I think something that you mentioned that's super important is we as a country still rely on the Farmer's Armanac to depict and predict what future winters and weathers look like. Not saying it's not a great science, not saying that it doesn't have some, it hasn't been useful over the years, but I would like to argue that we've become a little bit more educated since the 1800s and can move past using something of that nature because in 2020, the Farmer's Armanac said that Idaho was going to have one of the worst winters in history because we were set to be a part of the polar vortex. But because of the ice caps melting, we're seeing that 
the vortex is even changing how it, it um, shifts and how the air moves, where the northern part of Idaho saw frigid temperatures, but Boise, just because of its location, kind of got carved out and put into this nice air pocket that is centered around California. You saw these air patterns essentially dissect um, your normal uh, fronts that you would anticipate in the U.S. and split the country into two pieces and show here are the areas that will be negatively impacted as we continue to warm because these are the places where the hot air will always get trapped. So I, I think as you mentioned and as you speak to um, how we want to predict what might come and how we want to think ahead there has to be a better investment around technology and there has to be a better investment around understanding how these patterns are shifting our previous way of thought. Yeah, and more more policies aimed at, like you said, shifting our way of thought and also just shifting how we think about the environment in general and what we do to it, our everyday actions of, of how we affect it and change it. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was saying before, uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott um, on Sean Hannity uh, on Fox News Woo-hoo! last week blatantly blamed renewable energy resources like wind power on grid failures. But in fact, 80% of the issues could actually be attributed to gas, coal, and nuclear power plants. Mm-hmm. Let's check out this clip of Greg Abbott speaking his mind on Sean Hannity instead of focusing on helping the residents of Texas. This shows how the Green New Deal would be a deadly deal for the United States of America. Our wind and our solar got shut down and and they were uh, collectively more than 10% of our power grid. And that thrust Texas into a situation where it was lacking power in a statewide basis. It just shows uh, that fossil fuel is necessary uh, for the state of Texas as well as other states to make sure that we uh, will be able to heat our homes in the wintertime and cool our homes in the summertime. So Terrell, my question to you is how hard is it going to be to do something about climate change when you have certain leaders and powerful people actively fighting against the idea that it even exists? Hmm. Are we, are we playing by historical rules or are we playing by 2021 rules? Well, what, what's the difference here? Historical rules would say that you need to pass a large legislative piece and it would have to be filibuster proof and need a huge majority and buy-in and 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 2021 rules say that democrats own own um, are in charge of both houses and congress and the white house and reconciliation is a thing well okay my qualm with reconciliation is it only it can only be passive it affects numbers and that's yes. that means you're limited to addressing actual policy decisions with numbers and i don't think that's the full breadth through budget it. yeah but i don't so think that's shift. the full breadth of actual climate policy that we need i can agree there's there's treaties and agreements that are that need to be made but but climate policy shouldn't just be numbers and it has to be for budget reconciliation how awesome would it be if you can't get the buy-in from specific states that you pass a, a more robust and thoughtful um, emissions standards incentive, let's say, for certain indus- for a certain industry, push it through reconciliation, get it done, 
And now you don't have to worry about Texas saying, oh, well, we need to move back to fossil fuels, blah, 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 blah. Because now you've gotten the fossil fuel industries and the automotive industries to buy into and think, well, at the end of the day, this is going to impact our bottom line. So we're going to start making the shift. How amazing would it be if there were more tax incentives for new developments, um, whether it be through affordable housing or just in general, to have more greener policies and more greener spaces? I, I agree with you that climate change requires more than just the numbers. But when we think about our country and when we think about one specific party is arguing that the science isn't there and that climate change isn't even real, there's a such thing as clean gas that we can use if we, I won't even get into that. Um, what if you just hit them in their pockets? Well, okay, so so while I think it needs to be more than just numbers, I also agree that you have to do what you can, and that is reconciliation. So I do agree with all, basically, of what you said. Um, I have to, you know, display my my puntastic skills here. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm already <laughs> because, concerned. you know, Terrell, there's always a nuclear option. <laughs> Why did I laugh? Why did I laugh? I'm so mad. <laughs> I'm not talking about the uh, energy source. But anyways, uh, just something to think about, you know, future episode down the line, folks, we'll talk about the nuclear option. (laughs) If we really want to talk about it, I did a fun eighth grade science project where I went through the whole process of nuclear energy. So I can can go through a real nuclear option for you. Is nuclear the future? No. Do you think it has to be part of it? No. Why not? Had this been 2010... Yeah, probably. But there have been, I think the reemergence of the Chernobyl diaries, I think the focus on, um, I can't remember what planet was. There was a plant in, in the States that nearly malfunctioned and it caused a huge crisis. I know what you're talking about on the island. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Russia had another malfunction. I think we've shown that and there's been investment in different types of energy, such as solar, um, hydrothermic, wind, that have just shown why take the risk when you have more safer bets. Well, I don't think you need to take the risk. Technology oh, these days with nuclear power actually like takes away any kind of meltdown that could happen. Until a but random we, wind pattern comes in and shuts down a grid and incorrect. causes issues. Incorrect. I mean, to an extent, yes. Some of the technological advances these days for nuclear is very interesting. The problem is, is we just refuse to update any nuclear plants. Because it costs a lot. Costs a lot, but it's worth it in terms of safety. Yeah. And just to build another one. But I will say that the the byproduct of nuclear energy is not as toxic and um, concerning as people have always made it out to be it actually turns out to actually not be an issue whatsoever but i just i think even with all of that in mind i think there have been enough cautionary tales that it's really hard to get the suburban mom to buy into and know that within her state there is a nuclear power plant somewhere that if 
And again, you can tell them that it is a one in two trillions chance. But if it were to malfunction, they could be impacted. I, I yeah. really think for our country and where we are and the the selfishness that our country has at this moment in time, it's very hard to sell them on a message like that. Kind of one last thing I'll say about nuclear power is it's actually very interesting. It's one of the few things in American maybe culture slash history that Americans have said, okay, that's dangerous and we don't want that. Um, Even though we created nuclear bombs. Nuclear bombs, but power plants for yeah. sure. And so that's like a good thing that everyone has kind of come to a conclusion on. But now it's really hard. Now that you have the technology to make nuclear power not only as clean as it can be, but also so safe that you actually don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. It's hard. It, it would be so hard to convince the American masses to accept it. And maybe it only takes a generation because you also have to think, I don't want to date your parents, but I'll date mine. My parents grew up in a time where they had to do the nuclear um, school. What, what am I trying to say? They had to do the emergency warnings where a siren would go off just in case a mm. nuclear weapon were to come over. So it, it's really hard to forego the trauma and the impact that that has <laughs> on. Well, I grew up where I had to hide under a desk in case a nuclear warhead flew over us, knowing that it wasn't going to do anything. Like, if it hit, it hit, and we're all dead. It's hard to then sell people on it. Well, here's a great nuclear plant that uses some very similar molecules and elements of the warhead that you were afraid of in the 60s. But as long as it doesn't malfunction, you're fine. It's just, I think, to your point... I think one of the repercussions of everything that has happened in the past and in our history has come to a head here. Maybe it does just take a generation like you and I. We've been we've been more thoughtful of terrorism, not in the sense of a nuclear warhead coming to us, but a school shooting or um, any form of gun violence. So as we get older and as technology again shifts you might find that our generation is more accepting and say, yeah, go ahead and throw a nuclear power plant in. <laughs> in the climate plant. <laughs> yeah. Like, why not? Uh, well, going back to uh, kind of our original climate discussion, I just kind of want to end with, um, you know, tackling the issue of climate change. It's not only going to take uh, being aware of, of kind of how uh, we as individuals can create change and have an effect, uh, a positive effect on the environment on the, and on the earth, but it's also going to take uh, political organization. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, even if that means working within the system to get the change you need, uh, the future can be bright, um, but we can do it. And I mean, we did it this election. So let's keep it up. Take a note from President Macron and invest in a party that actually wants to know its people but as you mentioned the future can be bright i do think one key piece to leave on is the the fact that the biden harris administration is genuinely thinking about climate and and making some solid investments instructing and working with the u.s department of energy to manage and work through 100 million dollars in climate 
innovation research opportunities. So actually doing some research and development on what are the strategic plans and principles that our country can take to better equip itself in combating and mitigating um, the crisis that we all know is there and we've all, we're all starting to feel the effects. Well, Terrell, I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. I, I just, I gotta say it. That's the only way that works. I don't know how else to do it. <laughs> you can keep this part in, honestly. <laughs> and we're dangerously likely to see you next week.